listening to Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Hey, my name's Reynolds. I want to welcome you to Crosspoint this morning. Uh, a couple of things, just stating the obvious. I'm not Brad. Um, Brad is, uh, first of all, I didn't think y'all would be here. I thought there'd be about three of us. I knew Doug Duncan and Terry Cole were coming and Fincher was coming, but other than that, so I thought we'd be go over to the youth room and do this, but hey, glad you're here. Um, Brad is one of three places. He is either at the Atlanta Zoo this morning, he is at the aquarium this morning, or he is at home in his pajamas watching TBN. I do not know where he is this morning, but he's in one of those three places. I'm thinking it's one of the first two, but we're glad that he is able to rest and get away this morning. It's funny, we get here kind of early every Sunday morning, and my boys come with me, and so Bailey and Bennett were running around doing what they do, and they were looking for Joseph, who is also one of, Brad, who's one of Brad's sons, and he was look, they were looking for Joe. Where's Joseph this morning? And Bennett says to Bailey, well, they're gone. They're at the zoo, or they're at the aquarium, or they're somewhere. And Bailey says, well, who's preaching this morning? And Bennett says, Dad, I get no respect at the house. You would think I didn't. But anyway, so Bailey comes up to me just a few minutes ago. I didn't know you were preaching this morning, Dad. Well, Yes, I am. You can tell what's been going on at my house. Um, preparation in silence. So anyway, we're glad you're here. Uh, I hope Thanksgiving went how you hoped it would go. You know how we often, um, we have events in our life, Thanksgiving being one of them, when we gather together with family and it's a big event and we had these hopes of how it will turn out. We have it in our mind that the food will all be delicious, that that the family, as they gather, will all get together in unity and kumbaya and have fun with one another, even if that crazy family member shows up. And so we hope for these things all the time, and so I hope it happened for you. Um, I don't have one of those crazy members in my family, praise the Lord, but uh, I know most of you do because I've heard about them. So I hope it turned out okay, but uh, happy Thanksgiving to you. Here's what I want to do today. I want to be, um, if I can be honest and this is a church, so I'm not sure we can do that. Can, we be, can I be honest this morning and kind of peel back a layer or two just about me, and then we'll kind of go from there. And so I'm going to divulge some things that I'm not proud of, but um, it's just kind of my default nature. And here it is. Here's how I live my life. And I've told, if you've been around Crosspoint for a while, and you're one of the guys that maybe we've done some studies together, you've heard this before, but here's how I, I live my life. I don't wake up in the morning thinking about this necessarily, but I can look back retrospectively on my life and say, yeah, that's pretty much how I'm doing it. Here's how I picture my life. I picture my life that I'm doing, that, that, like I hit an in-the-park in home run. I've used this analogy a lot in baseball. And then I get to the end of my life and that I, it's getting close to the end and I just slide in the home plate. And the umpire says, safe. And then I stand up and go, look at that. Did y'all see that? Did y'all see how I lived my life. I did it. I did it. I did it when, when it came to raising kids. I did it. Did you see that? I succeeded in raising kids. Did you see my marriage? It was, it was perfect. Did you see that? Did you see my career? It was, it was great. Did you see, see the church that I was volunteering and working at? Oh, did you see that? In other words, I try, to, I try to orchestrate everything in my life so that it just works out so that I can look back on me and go, wow, I'm impressed with me by the way I arranged and did and perform my life. And in fact, I've even changed it recently. I don't even want to slide in at the end of life. I actually, I want to stand up. I want to stand up home run. So I just cross the plate at the end and go, y'all see that? That's how you do life. Look, 401k is done. Kids, they have jobs. The marriage is still intact. The church is still going. The neighborhood, I know my neighbors. 
So I just want to stand up at the end and go, well done, good job, good job. Matter of fact, I treat my life oftentimes, if you grew up in the late 70s and then early 80s, you remember the Rubik's Cube, right? Who did not grow up in the 70s and 80s? Raise your hand. Okay, so you saw the Rubik's Cube when it came back out again, but you know what the Rubik's Cube is. The Rubik's Cube is that little cube that's all discombobulated with multiple colors, and you have to take different moves to get it all the same on every side. Matter of fact, it comes, when, it, when you get it out of the package, it's all the same, right? You have one color, green, red, yellow, blue, and you have all your colors. And then within moments, it's messed up never to return again to its original state. Well, when I was in the late 70s and early 80s, I had a Rubik's Cube. My dad had a Rubik's Cube. And because of the way I kind of live my life, I live my life as a, as a problem to be solved. As a matter of fact, I look at everything. I'm not proud of this. This is not some. Don't take notes on this and say, oh, this is how you live your life. But I live my life as a problem to be solved, kind of like the Rubik's Cube. And when the, when the Rubik's Cube came out, I don't know, my dad and I were kind of into it. And he, he got the formula. And there were multiple formulas on how you could do this. But he got the formulas and I was telling someone recently, he must have got them off the Internet. But in the late 70s, early 80s, there was no Internet. I, there was no personal computer that I'm aware of. But he got the formula. And so I spent hours and hours and hours memorizing the formula so that after some time of practicing and going over and memorizing the formula, I could do the Rubik's Cube in less than two minutes. And so I could knock this thing out. And my, my Rubik's Cube was lubed up. We've still got it. It is lubed and it moved and we could really make it. But that's kind of how I, I do life. I want to know the formula to life and I want to know which turns I need to make so that everything lines up just perfectly. And what that does, when, when I look at life as a problem to be solved, every area of life from people so that it, so that, so that if I were meeting with one of you, which we've, we've done before, again, I'm not proud of this, I look at your situation and I say, okay, what's the problem? And here's the three steps you need to solve it. Lay the problem out, whether it's financial, personal, whatever it is. You give me the problem, you will walk away from this encounter with three steps. And if you do those three steps, your side will be all green. It'll be perfect. And that's how I do things. I do that with money. I look at our money in our house and I look at it and say, okay, if I do X, Y, and Z, and do that, and things continue to play out, it's going to be done. I'm going to be able to say, at the end of it all, perfect, got it, retirement fund, I've given some away, I've, I've, I've managed my household well, I do it with my marriage. If I do X, Y, and Z, if I give so many words of encouragement, so many uh, non-sexual touches, if I give do this, this, and this, then it'll work out. And then at the end of life, I will be able to say, look, you do that. So if I meet with a young couple today, if Danielle and I meet with a young couple, my default nature is let me tell you how to fix you and tell you how to do it so that all your sides will come out the same color. I do it with my kids. I'm embarrassed of that. But I say, if you do this, this, and this, you're going to make it. And so the, just the other day, on the way up to Thanksgiving for this hopefully perfect encounter with family, I was telling the boys, because we have so many interactions with military and young, sharp folks in here, I said, boys, I figured it out for you. I have figured it out. Military, ROTC scholarship. I doubt either one of you will get into West Point. ROTC scholarship. How do we do that? Matter of fact, who was I? It might have been someone in here. I was asking just the other day. No, it wasn't anybody in here. I said, how do you do that? He said, go talk to a recruiter. I haven't gone and talked to a recruiter yet, but I, I'm just trying to figure out how do you do kids. And here's the problem with these things. There are strengths with that type of personality. Some of you have that type of personality. Some of you are fixers. You say, you give me your problem, I'll fix the problem. 
I'll straighten it out. I'll, I'll, I'll give you, it may take me a minute, but I'll give you a list on what you do. You do these things, and, and your Rubik's Cube will be, in, will be in order. Some of you have that personality. Some of you don't. It's not necessarily a great personality. Here's what it can result in. It can cause my hope. It can cause my sense of being. It can cause my fulfillment. It can cause everything about me to put my hope in me and not in who I trust. Now, here's the other byproduct of having that personality. It can make you very, very difficult to be around because you know that if you're dealing with me and I kind of give an assignment or a suggestion or a project, a lot of you have been part of this with me, several of you in particular, that I'll give the project and then I'll take it back from you. Because I think my way is probably the best way, the most efficient way. You know, you're the type of person, you're, you're me, if you're the type of person who thinks about your trip to Thanksgiving on how you're going to get to Atlanta or how you're going to get to Disney, or where, and you're going to take the most direct route that you're timing the pit stops, that any of those in here, that you got two or three minutes, we're here. By the time I pull the nozzle out of this gas tank, you better be back in the car because we're back in. I'm setting the record to Disney World. You know, you're that person. Here's what happens. You put your hope. You put your hope in your ability to accomplish things. And you put your hope in your, in your reputation. And, and your personality becomes very controlling. And it produces, it produces pride. And it produces self-righteousness. And it, and it, produces, it, it produces impatience towards indecisiveness. So if you're an indecisive person, you know who you are. You drive me crazy. I can't stand indecisive people. This is my problem, though, not yours, because God made us all different. But I'm just confessing. I'm peeling back that layer today to say my personality, my controlling personality, my, my get the Rubik's Cube right personality can cause me oftentimes to put my hope in my self-determination. And this, friends, is a false hope because when I fail at whatever, and inevitably I often fail, then my hope is shattered. And so what I want to do today briefly, we're not going to be here long this morning. promise you that. I want to talk about the hope that we have in Christ, in God the Father, and what He's done through Christ on the cross. So we're going to go to 1 Peter. 1 Peter is a New Testament letter. I've spoken on it. Matter of fact, if I preach twice a year for the rest of my life or my involvement here in Christ, Cross Point, I can pre- preach about Peter or in First Peter for the rest of the time, and I probably will. That's on page 719 if you're using one of the Bibles in front of you. Um, if you're just looking for it in your Bible, First Peter is towards the end of the New Testament, so towards the latter part of the Bible, and it's just before you get to First, Second, and Third John. You'll see these two letters, First and Second Peter. And so... Um, Who's Peter? I think if you have any Bible in you, if you have any church in you, you're familiar with Peter in his life. Peter was one of the disciples. He might be considered even the main guy. He was very upfront as far as the disciples are concerned. We read about that in the Gospels, um, that he was the one who was quick to respond. He was the one who, who probably loved grabbing the microphone. He was probably the one who sticked his foot in his mouth most often and made a fool of himself very often. But he was... 
He was, he was cowardly, which we talked about. I preached a few months ago on, on Peter and John's and the rest of the disciples' transformation from being very cowardly to very bold that we see in the first uh, five chapters of Acts. But Peter was a guy who, who was not afraid to, to say what he thought. And so um, what we see here in this letter, now let me tell you, Peter was the guy, if you remember, he denied Christ to a little servant girl that Jesus had predicted that he would do. And in so doing, Peter denies Christ in front of the servant girl before his crucifixion, saying, I don't know the guy, I don't know who he is. And, 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 and so he goes from that transformation to what we see in the book of Acts, which is just you know, a few weeks or months removed from the, from the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ to being very bold standing before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 5, rejoicing in the fact that he was able to, to suffer for the sake of Christ, saying so much, uh, so directly in, the, in one of the first few chapters of Acts that there is no other way to salvation except through Christ. So we talked about that transformation that took place in this guy and the other disciples, the Apostle Peter. And, and, and so now we get to this letter of 1 Peter, and we're probably 20 or 30 years removed from what we read about in, or what you can read about in the first few chapters of the book of Acts. And so now Peter is writing to a group of Christians. Okay, so the church has been planted. The Christian church has been planted, started in Jerusalem, which is where we saw Peter and the other disciples in the book of Acts in the first five chapters. And it spreads throughout the entire Roman Empire. And so what Peter is doing here is, is he's, he's writing a letter to these Christians because what's about to happen is either right on the edge of Nero, the Roman emperor, beginning to rule over, over Rome, and what Nero did is he began to persecute Christians physically. In fact, you can read about Nero taking Christians, using them for lampposts in the city, burning them on the stake alive. You can hear about all this physical persecution. But what Peter is writing about here to these Christians, he's, he's writing saying, listen, you have suffering ahead of you. So what you signed up for following this Christ is going to cause you much suffering. That's what the entire letter of First Peter is about, but what we're going to talk about today is just the first few verses where we kind of tease up the confidence that we have in Christ so that these Christians could endure life on this earth. So let me do this. Let me read the first few verses, and we're just going to stop and go as we go along. And so First Peter chapter 1, again, page 719 in the chair Bible in front of you, and it says this, Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, again, he, was not, he didn't write these first few verses, okay, in order to be uh, divisive or controversial, okay? So when you read these verses, go, oh, here we go again. That's, Peter's intent is not to be divisive or controversial. He, his intent in writing these first few verses in the verses we covered today was to make the, the majesty and, and the wonder and the awe of God more spectacular. That was his purpose, he didn't say, well, I'm going to write this so that in the midst of their suffering, they can have a very controversial topic. No, he was just stating the facts so that they would see God as all glorious and all wondrous and all worthy of our worship. And so he says this, Peter, declaring who he is, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles in the dispersion of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied 
to you. So he just, he just kind of gives this matter of fact. Let me tell you something. He says, you are Christians who have been chosen by God. Again, all of this is a preparation for what he's going to tell them in the rest of the letter. You are Christians who have been chosen by God according to the foreknowledge of God the Father for obedience to Christ through the sanctification of the Spirit. And then he tells them this. He kind of tells them at the beginning, you're exiles. Christians, listen, you're spread all over the place. You've been dispersed throughout the entire Roman Empire, and this is not your home. So do not get too attached to this, because you're in exile. No matter where you are, whether you're in Pontius, whether you're in Galatia, this is not your home. I'm going to tell you about a home that is to come, but this isn't it. But I want to prepare you. I want to remind you that you've been chosen by God, that it's because of God's greatness that we are Christians. And so that's how he starts his letter. And so then we're going to dig down into verses 3 through 6, and I want to I consider three things as we look at these three verses, and then we're going to get out of here, and we'll go do what we'll do. We'll dread work tomorrow, dread school tomorrow, or take a nap this afternoon, whatever it leads you to do. But I want, to, I want three things to consider as we look at verses 3 through 6. Number one, what has God done? Number two, what has God promised? And number three, what should it produce? Number, number one, what, God has, what has God done, what has God promised, and what should it produce? So let's start reading in verse 3. I'm just going to stop along the way. We'll get to v- verse 6 or part of verse 6, and then we'll be done. Verse 3 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's how he, that's how he start, just stamps it there. Everything begins with praise. You can read Paul's letters. You can read Peter's couple of letters. Everything always begins with praise. In other words, he's deflecting everything everything about him. He starts the letter saying, I'm an apostle, okay, I'm telling you who it's from, and that was normal in that time to start the letter telling you who it's from and identifying yourself. Peter, I'm an apostle. But he doesn't say, listen, guys, listen up to what I'm telling you because I'm Peter, I've got a resume, I was with Jesus. He doesn't start it like that. He doesn't start it with arrogance. He starts it with praise to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, everything. Everything about the Apostle Peter, everything about the Apostle Paul that we read was all about praising God the Father, regardless of the circumstances. Something interesting, I saw this this week on YouTube. And um, I, don't, you, you, I know what YouTube is. Someone asked me recently, Amy Landig, and Amy's not here. She asked me the other day if I knew what Facebook was even. I know what it is. I'm a ninja. I don't have one, but I'm on, so I'm watching. I know what's happening. Um, this, was on, this was on YouTube, and someone had posted this link, but it's Tim Tebow, okay, responding to something that had been said. If you're a sports fan, you probably saw this on ESPN. He's responding to something that had, be, had been said, I believe, by Jake Plummer. Is that who said it? Does anybody even know what I'm talking about? Give me a nod. Was Jake Plummer the quarterback for Denver before? Okay, I'm getting that nod. Before Tebow? NFL's not my strength, right, Terry? Um, I do know who Tim Tebow is. He, he, Jake Plummer said this about Tim Tebow. He said, this guy, he, and I'm paraphrasing, he exudes greatness. But can he just hush up about the Jesus Christ stuff a little bit? Can he just tone it? Now we, and Plummer was saying, and I don't know Plummer's position or his beliefs or anything, but he, he's saying, can he just chill out about that? We get the point, Tebow. We get the point. Yeah, okay. Always everything's about praising the Lord. Everything's about praising Jesus. Every time we see you on TV, you're praising Jesus. You're on your knee. 
Tebow's response, look this up. It was classic. It was classic because the guy, the reporter on ESPN, and Tebow's on, they don't have him live. I just see his face and it's responding. And, and, and the reporter says, so, Tebow, how do you respond to that? And you can just tell the reporter's ready to mm, kind of get him. Let's see what you do with this one, okay? We're speaking for the rest of the world. We're tired of it, Tebow. Tebow says, first of all, I'd like to thank Jake Plummer for his compliments of, of calling me great, of, of thinking I have that kind of work ethic, of thinking I'm that kind of person, that, that I'm that kind of player. I want to compliment Jake Plummer. And then he said, but here's, here's, here's what I compare this to. He said, it would, it would be as if I were married and I told my wife on the wedding day that I loved her. And then for, throughout the entire rest of my marriage, I never told her again. He said, when I'm married, I think the best thing for my marriage would be to tell my wife in the morning, would be to tell her at lunch, would be, and I'm paraphrasing this whole thing, but just tell her all the time how much I love you and that everything about my being is for the love of my wife. He said, that's what Jesus means to me. So I want to constantly be praising Jesus. I want to be constantly praising God for what he's done because he's my savior and and the the reporter just went well said brother well said and I don't know the reporter's position anyway but yeah it was it was Brett look that up Tim Tebow responding to Jake Plummer it is beautiful and so my my point to that is Peter begins this letter starting out there's no other way to start this letter blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ so regardless of what I'm about to tell you whether I'm giving you instructions or whether I'm giving you criticism or I'm giving you a compliment or I'm just giving you an encouragement. It's going to start with praise for God the Father. And that should be how we're defined in our life. That everything that we do, that every conversation that we have, that everything about us exudes praise for God the Father. And so then he goes on in verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to to his great mercy. So he's saying here, he's saying everything that I'm about to tell you after this has to do with God's mercy. Now, mercy is something that we throw around, and if you've been in church for a long time or grew up in church or you're kind of a churchman, if you will, you, you, mercy gets thrown around a lot. Grace gets thrown around a lot. But mercy is one of those terms that we kind of, we love it or we, we hate it. You see, we love mercy when it applies to us, when, when we're the ones receiving mercy. But oftentimes, when it comes to interpersonal relationships with one another, we're not so quickly to, to give mercy. And so, mercy is this. You can define it however you, I mean, you can, you, don't write this definition down like, oh, this is the definition of mercy. This is kind of my thoughts. Mercy is an, is an unusual And it's an uncommon act of kindness and compassion when it's not deserved. Mercy is an unusual and uncommon act of kindness and compassion when it's not deserved. And we see this play out all the time. Sometimes we're givers of mercy and sometimes we are beggars of mercy. I'll give you an example of mercy, how it played out. I don't give mercy that often or it takes me a while to get there. But usually it comes around the discipline in our house of our two boys. Um, 
And, and, and should that happen, usually I'm pretty extreme on the discipline. Not, I'm not beating them down. They're okay. No bru- But usually I respond. I remember one time, this was years ago, I was at, I was at work um, in the car driving around, and I get a call from Danielle talking about something that had happened. Don't know which boy. I could speculate, but don't know which boy <laughs> had done this. But they, they just gone off the charts about spelling words and definitions. Back then you had spelling words and you had to define them. I mean, it, it was smart out, like, you know, firing back at mom. I told them via Danielle, I said, you tell them they're going to write every one of those spelling words and definitions a thousand times. That's my, I'll show you, I mean, kind of military, I'll show you a thousand times. And at the point, at that time, I meant it. I meant a thousand times. Then I played out. I probably talked to Terry on the phone about that time. You're not going to believe what I just, what I had just enforced. And so, and so, over time, I realized, you know what? Maybe now they deserve that. Let me go ahead and say that they deserve to write the spelling words a thousand times because of their disrespect and disobedience and what had gone on. And we we can find ourselves in that position a lot. We deserve a lot. But at some point, I softened to say, wait a minute. You deserve that, but I'm not going to give you that. And so I don't remember how it played out. It played out even Thursday night. We were at my mother-in-law's, and, and, and they, were, they were goofing off in the, in the den. I say if you're a preacher, don't use, don't use examples about your kids because it'll scar them and stuff like that. Well, I'm not a preacher, and I don't preach that. <laughs> and I don't preach that often, so we're going to. But they were goofing off in the den and at my mother-in-law's, you know, some fragile things around. They had two ping-pong paddles and ball going back to see how they can go back and forth, and then it just went bad. You know how if you have kids, it just goes bad all of a sudden? <laughs> Quick! I mean, it goes from good to bad. Like, what just happened? And this was about 8 o'clock. We're, I mean, we're, we are doing some serious stuff. We're trying, we're watching the reunion of Biggest Loser. I mean, we're seeing, I mean, there's some serious stuff going on on television. We're trying to watch, and they're messing it up. And, and so, and so it, it went bad in a hurry. So I sent one of them to the room, and I said, you're done. You're done. Go. We'll see you in the morning. Check your bread. Was it? This was not that big a deal. He deserved that. I mean, he's 8.30 at 9 o'clock. That's, I mean, from go in there, go to bed, we'll see you in the morning, we'll try again. Y'all ever do that one? Go to your room, come back, we'll try again later. So he deserved that. Right? He did deserve that. Somebody give me some. <laughs> I need help. I need, count, I need counseling. I know that. He deserved that. But at some point in there, I went, nah, it's Thanksgiving. I'd hoped that this would all go well, that the family would get along and we could go around the circle and tell what we're thankful for. But no, it's gone bad. One's in the room. He's not coming out till mor- morning. So out of mercy, not giving him what he did deserve, I gave him what he didn't deserve. Come on back out. You're not going to believe this person on Biggest Loser. Take a look at this one. Come join the fun. And so I gave him mercy. We do that all the time with our kids. And so this, this idea of mercy, idea of giving someone compassion and kindness when they don't deserve it, sometimes we're slow to get there, but we want it for us all the time. Think about this. Everything, everything and anything that we have is because of God's mercy. The fact that we woke up this morning and were able to breathe, that's an example of God's mercy. It's on everyone. It's on, it's on the believer and non-believer alike. The very fact that you had breakfast, regardless of what you had this morning, was an act of God's kindness and mercy on our life. The very fact that 
that, that, that you are alive today is an act of God's kindness and mercy. See, but part of us as Americans in the 21st century says, well, wait, 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 wait. I, I, I deserve some of the things. I deserve to go out to Hunter's Pub, or I deserve to, to, to go here and eat at this fine restaurant, or I, I deserve to have this house, or I deserve to drive this car, or I, I deserve to, to make this bonus, or I deserve to win the trip. Here's the reality. It's a common phrase in our house. We deserve nothing. We deserve death. Every one of us. That's what we deserve. We deserve death. But in God's unusual and uncommon act of kindness and compassion, He gives us something else. Here's what it says in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7. It says, Paul, writing to the Corinthians, if you remember, they were a pretty messed up bunch, so this is pretty sarcastic to them. Um, He says, what do you have that you did not receive? He says, if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? That's Paul making a point to them. So you you folks are bickering and arguing and, and, and getting divisive over so many things. Everything that you have is from God. And so why are you acting as if you didn't get it from God? Paul will say at the end of Galatians that, hey, in light, of cross, in light of the cross, I have nothing to boast about. So he says, far be it from me to boast of anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. He says, Paul's saying to the Corinthians, we have nothing to boast about. Everything that we have is because of God's mercy. Here is the most clear example of God's mercy, and it shows us how much he loves us. When we stand before God and he declares us not guilty. That's the pinnacle of mercy. When an individual, now we have a hard time with this, although uh, kind of cognitively and intellectually, if you're a Christian, you would agree with this and say, oh yeah, I know I'm a sinner. But we really do struggle with this in kind of our, our upper middle class society where we're, we, we don't really consider ourselves sinners. Yeah, we sing about it, we know it, but, but most of our crimes are white collar crimes. I mean, we drive the speed limit for the most part, or at least we know when to slow down, or we, we obey most of the rules that are in our life. We don't make it a, uh, a habit to lie, but we do lie, but the, ones, the times that we do lie are probably for good reasons that we lie. And so that's kind of our white-collar guilt that we associate with ourselves, if we, if we can be honest with us. But the reality is the Old Testament gives gives just laws and laws and laws. It starts with the, with the Ten Commandments and just goes to 600 other laws that says, hey, this is the standard of God. The standard of God is perfection. And if you cannot meet the standard of God, then you, individual, are guilty. And so here's the, here's the, here's the, um, the guilt that we can probably most associate with ourselves because, again, we don't consider ourselves ravaged sinners that are killing and murdering and, and stealing and taking and, and doing all sorts of things that make the newspaper. We consider ourselves more of a, a kind of a more sophisticated sinner. But we are guilty of this. We make so many things, not everything, but so many things in our life idols. What an idol is, is when we take a good thing and we make it a bad thing, then it becomes a God thing. 
So we take something good in our life. Let's, let's take money. We take a good thing, we make it a God thing, and it becomes a bad thing. It becomes an idol. We can take, we can take success. Success in our business can be a good thing, but if we turn it into a God thing, it becomes a bad thing. There's a big, we have kids in here today, but we can take the, so I won't go into detail on this, but we can take the, the, the attraction and seducedness of society and we can take a good, what God meant for good and we can turn it into a God thing and it becomes a bad thing. And it's idolatry and we're eaten up with this. And because of that idolatry, because of that sin, we are separated. We come into this world separated from God without hope. It doesn't matter how close we get to figuring out the Rubik's Cube of life. We are hopeless in and of ourselves. Listen to Romans one twenty-five. It says, We, meaning all of us before Christ, exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Meaning we have taken the things that God has created in life for our good and we have worshiped them and we've made them God-like, we have exchanged worshiping the created instead of worshiping the creator. We've all done that. Ephesians 2, verses 1 and 2. We'll get to that next week. I believe Brad will be preaching on those verses. It says, we, And we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the curse of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of dis- disobedience. So he's saying, we were dead. We were separated from God without hope prior to Christ. That's everybody. All of us. It's all-inclusive. Romans says no one is righteous. No, not one. Colossians one twenty one says we and we who were once alienated and hostile in mind. That is all of us before Christ. So knowing this, knowing that our condition, our own state and condition, doesn't it make God's Mercy. Remember, we're starting this thing out according to God's great mercy. When we understand our condition before God, doesn't it make His 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 mercy even more amazing? And so, those are mercy is something we should chew on and think about and and rejoice in constantly. We see a great picture of God's mercy in the parable of the prodigal son, Luke chapter fifteen. Again, if you've had any Bible and you remember this, when the younger younger son wanted all the inheritance. So the father gives him all the inheritance and he goes and squanders all the inheritance while the older son is very obedient, very self-righteous, does all that the father has asked him to do. But when the younger son comes back, what does the father do to the younger son? He doesn't give him what he deserves. He gives him mercy. Son, come in. I'm not holding anything against you. I'm not giving you what you deserve. I'm giving you what you don't deserve, a feast. That's a beautiful picture, beautiful picture of God's mercy. Okay, let's move on in verse 3. It says, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So there's three things going on in this little part of the passage. So what has happened to the Christian? What has happened? He's caused, God the Father has caused, because of his mercy, has caused us to be 
born again. We're talking to Christians here. If you're a Christian in this room, this is what happened, has happened. He's caused us to be born again. To what? To a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of the dead. So I want to briefly talk about those three things. What, is, what has happened to the Christian? What, to what and how? And so what, what does it mean to be born again? He has caused us to be born again. Jesus answers this question in John chapter 3 when, when Nicodemus, a Jewish leader, comes up to Jesus and he asks the question, basically, what, you, know, you, you seem to be a man of God, a teacher of God, and so what, what must I do? What is the, the secret to getting to God? And, and Jesus responds to this Jewish leader, Nicodemus, and he says, you must be born again. Not the physical, not to go back into your mother's womb, but you must be born again of of water and of spirit. And he's not, return, he's not referring to baptism in this. I believe he's referencing back to Ezekiel chapter 36. In fact, let me read this to what scholars believe that Jesus is referring to. It says, I will take you, talking to Israel, this is God talking to Israel, I will take you, I don't have this on the screen, I don't think, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you. In other words, you are filthy, you are dirty. I will make you clean. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols. This is Ezekiel chapter 36, beginning in verse 24. It says, And you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So Jesus is referencing that and said, what, what must we do to, be, to have new life? You must be born again. You must receive the spirit. See, this born again, I, I grew up in a church that we didn't use that term. Matter of fact, the Baptists used that term. I didn't grow up in the Baptist church, so we always, we always talk about the born-again Christians. Those were the Baptists down the street. Let me just, you ever heard that before? I, I hear it sometimes. To, oh, they're one of those born-again believers. Information, there's no other type of believer but born-again believers. If you're a believer, you are a born-again. The Baptists did not invent that word. Jesus used that word. So he says, you must be born-again of spirit and water. He says, you must receive this new life. He says, let me reference Paul in uh, the Second Corinthians 5, 17, where Paul talks about this. Being a new, having a new spirit, a new life, being born again. It says, if anyone is in Christ, this is very familiar if you've been around the church, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5 Again, we'll talk about this next week more in depth. It says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, back to referring back to we are all without hope outside of God's mercy, when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So He's given us new life. We've been born again. Galatians 2.23. 2.20 says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So this idea that because of God's mercy, he's given us something. 
What has He done? He has caused us to be born again. So the old is gone. The, the old has passed away. The new has come. And then He says this, what have we born to? What have we been born to? And He says, a living hope. What is hope? Remember we talked about hope at the beginning? Hope is kind of how we want things to turn out. We all hope in things. We hope in things all the time. We are hoping, some of you are hoping that he would hurry up and be done so I can go and eat lunch. Some of you are, are hoping that we don't have to have turkey again for lunch today. We're, we're hoping for many things. We put our hope in so many things. Hope is something that we're putting our confidence in. It is a desire that we have for the future, whether it's for this afternoon, whether it's for tomorrow, a week from now, a month from now, a year from now, 20 years from now. Our hope is, what we, is our desire or what we're putting our confidence in for the future. And we all hope for many things. Some of you, the kids are in there. Who hopes, kids, who hopes that Christmas vacation would get here really fast? Parents? Parents are so glad you're going back to school tomorrow. But the kids are really hoping that Christmas vacation would get here really fast. You have three weeks. It will come. If the Lord does not return, it will come soon. So you can put confidence in that hope outside of the Lord returning. It will be here soon. Put our hope in high-paying jobs. We put our hopes in a satisfying career. We put our hopes in kids that succeed. Remember my hope? My hope was that, that the Rubik's Cube could be done just right so that at the end of life I could raise my hand and say, look at that. Anybody want to read the book? You want to read the book on how you do that? We put our hope in so many things. We put our, we put our hope in a marriage that works. We put... We put our hope in a team that wins. We put, we put our hope in, a, in a, having a good boss. We put our hope in, in maybe one day pro playing professional sports. We put our hopes to become a professional musician. We put, our, we put our hopes maybe to be on Broadway. We put our hopes to retire one day. Um, we, we put our hopes that maybe I'll go home this afternoon and no one will call. And then some of you will put your hope that Maybe I'll go home and maybe, maybe someone will call today. We, we put our hope in so many different things. And some of them are okay to put, put our hope in. But the reality is, all of those things that I've listed, and you can think of so many more, they're not eternal. They're all temporary hopes. They will all fade. They will all go away. What Peter is describing here is a living hope and an eternal hope, an everlasting hope, the one true hope. It says, according to God's mercy, He's caused you to be born again to a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He's saying, all of the hope hinges on this thing. It hinges on the resurrection of of Jesus, of which I was a witness. Remember what Peter is doing here. He's talking to Christians who are about to be persecuted and slandered and have a tough time living in society, bold, being bold for Christ. It's not very different than us. Try being bold for Christ tomorrow in the workplace. Try being Tim Tebow and take the criticism and ridicule that he has to take. It's not easy. It's not much different than how we're living. We're not talking about physical persecution for these folks at this time. And so he's saying, put your hope in Jesus and his resurrection from the dead. He says, our only hope, 
is a being born again or being made spiritually alive is through the person and work of Jesus. And it only comes, we've already talked about this, it only comes from God's mercy by Him giving us something, kindness and compassion that we don't deserve through the wrath-bearing substitute of Jesus' death on the cross and His resurrection from the grave. That's why we talk about Jesus so much here at Crosspoint. That's why we talk about the cross so much at Cross Point. That is our only hope, folks. That is our only hope. We, in and of ourselves, cannot manufacture this type of living hope. No amount of good works will suffice. Remember, the demand from God the Father is perfect obedience to the law. The, New, the, the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, the 600 laws that, that came from the Ten Commandments, all of the, the demand from God the Father on the human being is perfection to the law. The Jewish people cannot keep the law. We cannot keep the law. The only person who could keep the law was Jesus, and he did it perfectly. And while doing it, he stored up righteousness in himself on our behalf. So that at the cross, at the cross, we talk about it a lot, the great exchange took place at the cross for the Christian, not for everybody, for those who believe in this, at the cross, the sin of man was exchanged for the righteousness of Christ. That's why we call that, Martin Luther called it, the great exchange. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So our living hope, our only hope, the only true everlasting hope is in the person and work of Jesus in his resurrection from the grave. God's mercy has done all that. We don't have any of that outside of God's mercy. Let me read you a passage out of Titus. I didn't give this to the guys back there, I don't believe. But um, Titus is a little book that Paul is writing to Titus, one of his... um, kind of understudies, and he he tells them this in Titus chapter 3, verse 5 through 6. He's speaking of God, the Father, in the person and work of Jesus. It says, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. All this is done because of God's mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal, making clean, making our filthiness clean. Done by righteousness. Of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified, being made right before God, that's what that term justified means. We are now seen right before God because of what Christ has done on the cross and because of our trust in that, being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So He's saying it's because of God's mercy that you have this new life is because of His grace, God the Father's grace working through His Son, Jesus, on the cross, taking your sin upon Him and in turn exchanging righteousness, giving you His righteousness. Because of that, putting faith and hope in that, you become heirs. And that's where it picks up in verse verse 4. So what has God done? God has shown mercy. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection uh, from the dead. Now what has he promised? Verse 5, verse 4. We're almost out of here. 
says, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Think about what this means. And we talked about adoption a few weeks ago where we looked at um, Galatians 4 and we looked at Ephesians 1 and what, what, what the Scriptures tell about being adopted as sons and what Titus just referenced that, that if you are a Christian, that if you have put your hope in the resurrection of Christ, that, that now you become an heir. So to be born again, as Peter is talking about in these few verses, to be born again means now, now that you are an heir to salvation, that you've been adopted as sons and daughters. I'm, I'm not sure if this is true, but someone in this room told me this, and so we'll go with it, but you can look it up to find out. When you're adopted, we're talking about this in our LifePoint group on the evening after Brad had preached on adoption. When you're adopted, because of the laws within the state, and it could be just state-specific, but when you're adopted and the adoptive parents sign the papers, you can't unadopt them, and you can't, you can't write them out of the will. They're in there because you have been adopted. It can't be undone. So when you become an heir to the throne because of what Christ has done, it can't be undone. undone. Now here's the scary part about this adoption or, or not being adopted. If you're a biological and you were not adopted, you can be written out of the will. But the state laws, and I'm not talking about eternal security. I'm talking about within your family. This is what's been what's so intriguing. State laws say if you adopt a child, attorneys, y'all can clarify this, you can't write them out, but you can write your biological kids out of the will. So behave yourself, folks, is what I'm telling you. But if you're adopted, feel secure in your adoption because you cannot be written out of the will. And this cannot be used as legal testimony because I'm unsure about that, but we talked about that and we heard that that was true. So check that up and get back with me. But think about what it means to be adopted as a son. You are now an heir to salvation. And what that means is that you now have full rights and full privileges as a family member. And that's what Peter is telling these Christians. He's saying, listen, because of God's mercy, you've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of the dead to an inheritance. And let me tell you about this inheritance. He describes it. He says it's imperishable. It's undefiled. It's unfading. Think about those three things. Imperishable. We bring bananas home from the grocery store. Within two days, they're brown. They're perishing. They're going away. What he's saying is here, and that's the, the clearest analogy I can It does not begin to spoil at all. It's always there. It's imperishable. Your inheritance that is secure for you is there waiting for you. It's undefiled, meaning it's perfect. It's like the, it's like the diamond that does not have any blemishes whatsoever, it, if, if that even exists. It's perfect. It's undefiled, and it's unfading. It's not like cheap cotton you wash and dry, and then it's a different color, and you say, what was that? It's, it's unfading. What he, Peter is saying about this inheritance is that this thing is perfect. And he'll go on to say that it's being kept in heaven for you. Now, here's the reality. That doesn't excite many of you or many of us because we love this world too much. We all like the idea of going to heaven just not today. That's broken thinking, actually. But can we be honest? I'm not sure we can. said that at the beginning. But if we could be honest, we'd much rather cling on to this life than we would go to that inheritance. You'd much rather your parents die off and get that inheritance than you would go to this inheritance. 
Not all of you, some of you. Here's what Paul said in Philippians. I believe it's the first chapter where he says, I desire to depart and be with Christ because it's better by far. In other words, Paul talking about this very thing. To be with Christ, to have this inheritance, is going to be better than anything we can imagine. But here in the United States, here in our culture, we really, I really, I really like, I really, I, kids, I want Christmas vacation to get here. I really like the idea of that. And so it's hard for us to think about how great the inheritance that is waiting for us is. And he says this in verse 5. It says, this inheritance, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So right now, as we speak, if you are a believer in Christ and you put your faith, your hope, and your trust in that, if you're a Christian, your inheritance is being guarded by God. So if you're a Christian, it's God's right. I don't know what it looks like, but I just picture it that there's, Reynolds, there's yours. God, God is in heaven guarding the inheritance. It's not going, it's, it's for you. No one's going to come and take that seat. It's for you. It's secure. It's not going away. Now, knowing that, shouldn't that cause us to live bolder for Christ? More radical for Christ? Remember, the Christian, the Christian that he's talking about is about to get slandered, talked about. They're going to get made fun of. They're going to get eventually beaten up. What he's trying to do, he's trying to put a little fire in their britches to say, listen, it's going to be tough in this life. You're exiles. This is not your home. But be confident in this, that because of God's mercy, you've been born again to a living home through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead to an inheritance that isn't going away. So live boldly, regardless of whether you're sick, regardless of whether you're persecuted, regardless of whatever you're going through, live bold for Christ because there is something better to come. But as Paul said, it's more necessary, all of us, because God has us here to stay here right now and to live for Him, to glorify Him, and to make much of Him. Final point, beginning of verse 6, in response to everything that I've just told you, in response to everything that Peter has written, what does he say to do? In response to this, he says, in this you rejoice. The fact that you have God's mercy, the fact that you've been born again, the fact that you have an inheritance waiting for you, you rejoice. The life of the Christian should be one of rejoicing. There should be no other response. As Tim Tebow said, responding to the reporter, when I think about what God has done, there's no other response but rejoicing. There's no time for slumber. There's no time for heads down. It should produce rejoicing in all of us. Listen to these verses. And we'll close it down. Psalm 5, verse 11. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. Psalm 13, verse 5. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. Matthew chapter 5, verse 12. Talking about them being persecuted as Christians. He says, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. Luke Chapter 10, verse 20, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Philippians 4, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. 1 Thessalonians 5, Will read this at the beginning of the service. 5, verse 16, I don't know if any of you do any scripture memorization. I recommend that you do. Store God's word up in your heart. Start with this one. It's two words. Rejoice always. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, rejoice always. 
The believer should be characterized by rejoicing. So let me ask you this. Where is your hope? Is your hope, is my hope, in my self-determination, in my ability to solve the equation of life and to be able to stand up at the end of life with my, a shirt that is still wrinkle-free without any blemishes and pride and self-determination? Or is my hope in the person and work of Jesus? We all have to answer that question. We all have to answer that question. If your hope is not in Christ, all you do is turn to Him. Repent and believe. There will be no special prayers. There will be no form to fill out. No one will come down at the end of the service or you come down out. We don't have that. There's nothing wrong with that. But you have to turn, repent, and believe and put your hope in the work of Christ. Paul's, Peter's parting words, not his parting words, but later in that first chapter, he says this. Later down in the first chapter in verse 13, he says, therefore, meaning because of what I've written before this, prepare your mind for action, Christians, because of what you're going to endure and what you're going to go through. Prepare your minds for actions. And being sober-minded doesn't mean don't get drunk. It means be so be level-headed in the way you live. Set, meaning set it. Set your hope. Fixate it. Put it in the ground. Set your hope is what he's telling them. Be prepared. Get a good foundation. Kind of buckle up. Get in that ready position. Set your hope is kind of how I picture Peter telling these folks. It's because things are going to come. He says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So let's set our hope. Father, we love you. We thank you for the truth of Scripture that God is not anything that we have done, but it's because of your mercy that people are born again. And Lord, we thank you that, that with salvation comes new life. And Lord, even as we walk in, um, oftentimes, in the false hopes of our own ability and own determination and own self-righteousness and self-will, Lord, you in that continue to give us what we don't deserve. And that is an unusual and uncommon act of compassion and kindness. And for that, we thank you. Thank you for the inheritance, Lord. Thank you for what we have been promised that is being held right now for those who believe. And Lord, would you by your spirit working in us cause us to rejoice at this good news that as Will prayed earlier that it should produce the most unbelievable thanksgiving above all things and I pray it in Jesus name